Hello, and welcome to the City Baptist Church Podcast, where our desire is to help others find meaning and mission in following Jesus. Today's message is from our brand new sermon series, Acts, Church on the Move. In this series, we follow the expansion of the early church. Even in the midst of persecution, we see the church experience tremendous growth through the power of God and staying faithfully committed to the Word and community. But today we're going to pick it up in the book of Acts, chapter number 8. Now the false trial and the death of Stephen, if you put yourselves in that place, and I think it's a good thing for us to do when we study the Word of God, to imagine ourselves in that situation, it would have sent shockwaves throughout that early church. If you think about the thousands of people that had turned to Christ in just a a matter of months, really, and then to have this leader, this man Stephen, someone who the church had chosen because of his uh, great impeccable character, his uh, vast amounts of faith that he demonstrated in his life, to have someone like that brutally murdered would have just decimated. It would have been very, very discouraging. You could imagine if we went through something like that as a local church here today. Of course, we were introduced last week as well to an onlooker, a man by the name of Saul, who stood by. Now, Saul was kind of a hotshot lawyer, if you want to think of him in, that, in those terms. He was somebody who they had brought from uh, Cilicia. He had come to be a part of the debate of Stephen. He was somebody who knew uh, all of the law. He was someone who was very zealous for the law, as he tells us later on in his books. He was very zealous, and he came, and he fought against, or not fought against, but debated against Stephen, and, uh, of course, miserably lost But then as we saw at the end of the chapter, we see Saul standing there watching as Stephen is murdered. And in fact, where we pick it up today, we'll see that he was someone who was consenting unto his death, meaning he approved of his death. But where we are right now in the book of uh, Acts is that we're seeing a transition take place now. We see a transition from the, uh, uh, the challenging of the apostles by the Sanhedrin to the killing of Stephen by the Sanhedrin, and now the open persecution of the church as a whole by the Sanhedrin, and it was led by Paul or by Saul with the full intention of capitalizing on the challenges that, it, that the death of Stephen would have brought. So today I want to pick it up, and we'll get right into it in verse number one in Acts chapter eight. And Saul was consenting unto his death. Now I've highlighted a few words here. Maybe you would underline it in your Bible or write it down on your note sheet, because I'm going to address each of these things, because what I want us to do is I want us to sense the temperature in the city at that time. You know, have you ever walked into a place and you're like, I need, you know, and you sort of sense the temperature in the room. And, and I'm not talking the heat, you know what I mean, just the feeling, the vibe that's in the room. I want you to get a sense of the vibe or the feeling that's in Jerusalem at this time. So Saul was consenting unto his death, that's Stephen's death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then a little footnote, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. I think the feeling that was in the city at the time was a feeling of unrest, don't you think? A little bit of confusion, a little bit of nervousness. Notice how it said here that Saul, first of all, was consenting unto his death. That means he was pleased and approving of his death. I don't know if he was slow clapping at the sidelines while they were stoning Stephen, but he was there and he was obviously showing his approval of his murder. And it says that it brought about then a great persecution. That means uh, persecution is harassment. It is mistreatment. It is trouble that comes along. 
And it was because of that trouble, because of that mistreatment of the early church, that we see that they were scattered abroad. That means they were dispersed. They were broken apart. They began to leave Jerusalem. And then at the burial of Stephen, we see a great lamentation. The word lamentation carries more than just feeling sorry about something. It's the idea of of beating your chest in sorrow. It's the idea of a great outpouring of, of grief. And to add to that, Saul was making havoc of the church. The word there, havoc, means to dishonor. It means to destroy. And in its most literal temptation, it is the idea of wild beasts tearing apart a body. Now think about that for a moment. Literally, the body of Christ, the church, was being broken apart and torn, torn apart by Saul in his persecution. It also says here that they were hailing men and women. And that's not like hailing a cab like, you know, or an Uber, like right here. That means dragging. They were drag, literally going into homes and taking people and dragging them to prison. And so Saul and the temple guards were pursuing anybody that would have claimed Christ, anyone that would have been reported to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They were going out and they were grabbing these people. And as we see in the passage, no longer was it just the apostles. Remember, at first it was just the apostles. They were the ones that were put in prisons. They were the ones that were being attacked. But now they had focused or changed their focus of attention from the apostles to the whole church. And they were just going after everybody, doing whatever they could to break the, the, the church body apart. As you can imagine, that would bring about a little bit of pressure. If your very life, if your, uh, your freedom depended on whether or not you admitted openly that you were a believer. And so what happened through this is that it became so difficult that they couldn't meet openly together. And so people, for fear of their lives, began to leave Jerusalem for safer places to live. And, and honestly, when you look at this situation on the surface, to me, as I read this, I feel like, man, things are falling apart a little bit. I mean, they had such strong growth. Things were happening so quickly. People were coming to Christ. A great amount of the priests believe. Remember that. So many wonderful things are happening. But now I feel, personally, as I read this, I feel the insecurity of the moment. I don't know if you do. I feel the insecurity of, of the church and wondering what's going to happen. And did you hear that this family just moved away? Man, they just moved away. And this family moved away. And this person left. And, and did you hear about so-and-so? They got arrested and they were beat and uh, did you hear what they did to those kids and they separated those families? And did you hear about all of these things and, and the insecurity that would have been brought about? And I'm sure to many people it seemed hopeless as they made plans to move their family away from the persecution. And it was a great run, wasn't it? It was so wonderful during the time, but man, it's, it's so difficult. We've got to go. And it would have seemed very challenging, I'm sure, but there's a reality to the situation that I want you to notice that's not portrayed here in these first few verses. And this is the reality. The reality of this is that God is fulfilling his promise of Romans 8, 28, where he said, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor Paul? (laughs) This is terrible persecution. What are you talking about? How is this persecution good? How is there anything positive coming out of this? I want to show you the positive in verse number four, where it says, therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Did you see that? They that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. If you don't get anything else this morning, I want you to understand this. The result of the persecution was not the breaking of the gospel's power, but rather the breakthrough of the gospel from Jerusalem to the regions beyond. I want you to get that. The result of persecution was not the breaking of the gospel's power. Sometimes that's the fear. We see things start to fall apart and we're like, okay, is it as powerful as it really says it is? Or maybe we're struggling personally and we're like, okay, is the word really as as strong and as alive as we read about here? But the persecution did not bring about the breaking of the gospel's power, 
but it brought about the breakthrough of the gospel from Jerusalem and now being spread to the regions beyond. And I want you to see, church, this is the amazing power of God. That God can take something that pushes humanity to a breaking point, and then he uses it as a breakthrough for his glory. I mean, that's, that is the power of the gospel and the power of our God. And the thing I want you to get at the beginning of the message today is that for some of you right now, that is what God is wanting to do in your life. Some of you right now are in a, at a breaking point, <laughs> Some of you right now are at a place of great struggle, of great trial. You're, you're, you're being pushed to the very edge and you feel like, I'm never going to get through this. You feel like the Word of God is lifeless and you're struggling and you're having a hard time and you have trials and there's pain. But i got to tell you, God has a purpose in mind for you through all of this. You just don't see it yet. I love that I get to say that. <laughs> you just don't see it yet, but He is. God promises to them that love Him that He is working out something in you for His good. And you just don't know what it is that you're walking through. You're not really sure of how you're going to see it, uh, see the end of it. But I want you to still, I want you to be reminded today that no matter what your pain, no matter what your trial, no matter what your difficulty, you still need to respond as those early believers did. And that is they did not let their suffering silence their faith. They did not let their suffering silence their faith. And I love that this is the central focus of these believers. I mean, if it were me and I had to get up and move and move to like, some place like Prince George or something. I mean, that'd be difficult <laughs> because of persecution in Vancouver. I have friends in Prince George. <laughs> uh, but if I had to move somewhere, you know, I, I can't imagine that my first thought would be, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start sharing the gospel as soon as I get there. I'd still be wallowing in my own pity. <laughs> I'd be struggling with, how do I come to grips with this? I would say things like, oh, I just need to learn to deal with this right now. I need to maybe step back a little bit. I need to process. These are things that we say, right? I need to, I need to process it a little bit. But these, these believers did not get out, and we don't see at all any complaining, which is very interesting, because we're very good at complaining, and they're human. I'm sure they probably were. But the overriding testimony is that they would not let their suffering silence their faith. And so they continue to share the gospel. And I want to encourage you with this. You may be suffering. You may be going through some difficulty, but do not allow that to silence your faith. Right. You know, sometimes people go through a hard time, and, and they'll say things like, well, you know what, I just need to step back away from church for a while so I can heal. Have you ever had that? I mean, I've had people say that to me. I need to step away from serving the Lord for a bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step back from serving in different ministries or, or I'm going to stop giving for a while or whatever it may be. And they say, I'm just going to stop for a bit because I need to sort of process. I'm going through a hard time. And listen, I understand hard times. Believe me, I do. I know what it's like to go through difficult times. I know what it's like to walk through really challenging moments of life. But we are never called to stop just because we're suffering. We're never called to be silenced because we're going through challenges. And God wants us to continue on. And we see that testimony here in these believers. And I want to encourage you today. You may be feeling that. I felt that. By the way, there have been Sundays where I felt like I don't want to get up and preach. Maybe I need to step back. I need to take a break for a while. <laughs> uh, maybe I need to step. But you know what? I, I, I should not be silenced. And by the way, I have taken moments of that. And I, maybe that's a, a wrong quantification uh, to say that uh, sometimes pastors do need breaks. I'll just tell you that right now. Sometimes we need breaks. There's a lot of mental stuff going on. Sometimes we need breaks, but, for, but it's never stopped me from being in church. It's never stopped me from serving the Lord. And the same should apply to us. Satan will use your pain. He will use your suffering. He will use your difficulty to try to convince you to step away from serving the Lord. But this is what we see here is that they just continued on. They're central focused. They were being arrested. They were being displaced. They were being threatened. But the gospel was still their focus. As they moved into their new cities and homes and jobs, 
what we see is they made sure that they told other people about the gospel. And I love that testimony that we see here. And that's our same calling. You know, we should be carrying the truth of the gospel everywhere that we go. Whether it's our workplace, our families, it should be a focus of, uh, of ours to share the gospel with other people. And, and even when we're struggling, and I know that's the last thing we want to do at the time. But the testimony that we see here is that we continually to go out and share the gospel. And this is an amazing thing that we see. That even though the church was under intense pressure, God used it to multiply the gospel. God used it to uh, expand from Jerusalem now out into Samaria, which we're going to look at today. Now, as I mentioned earlier, and I'm going to say this actually maybe one or two more times today, so I'm going to make sure that you get this. The book of Acts is a transitional book. Say transitional. Transitional. Okay, the book of Acts is a transitional book as we see the gospel being primarily to the Jews and within the Jewish context and within the Jewish law, now carrying through Samaria and then into the Gentile believers as we see in Acts chapter number 10. And in these next few chapters, there's some things that are happening in there that are specifically transitional moments for this specific time that don't carry over into uh, the way that we worship the Lord today or the way that we even look at the gospel today. And so I just want to, uh, this. even today we're going to cover something that was a transitional moment. And so during this time of transition though, we see God's ultimate plan that was given to them in Acts 1-8 for the gospel to be carried to the rest of the world. And today, as we're going to see, begins the process of that movement. And so number one, I want you to see a multiplying gospel. A multiplying gospel. In verse number five, of Acts chapter 8, it says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Now, I'm going to show you a map in a moment, and Samaria is north. And you're going to say, well, what does it mean to go down? It's an interesting thing that the Jews did. Any, anywhere that you went outside of Jerusalem, you went down to it. It didn't matter where it was geographically. Jerusalem was the place. <laughs> you always go up to Jerusalem. And uh, so he says he went down to Samaria. He actually went up north and actually up into some mountains a little bit. But he went up to Samaria or went down. Sorry, it says went down to the city of Samaria. Just so you know, that's a, that's a, a, a way that they spoke back then. And he preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord, look what happened. One accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. These are the miracles that he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice came out of many. You say, man, that sounds crazy. It is kind of crazy. Why would the spirits be crying with a loud voice? That's something you see all throughout scripture. When a, an evil spirit is cast out of somebody, there's always a, a loud voice. There's a sound because they never like it when they're taken out of a human host. <laughs> and so there's a crying with a loud voice. And it came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsy. That's a, that's a, a, a physical sickness. And that were lame were what? What's that word? Healed. They were, you didn't say it very well. They were what? Healed. Good. <laughs> so Philip went up to Samaria. Now, just as far as some background a little bit, we need to remember that at this point, Israel was divided, sort of semi-divided into three different regions. There was a region of Judea, which was the southern part of it. It had Jerusalem in it. Then there was this middle area called Samaria there, and then there was Galilee. Now, Jesus was from Galilee. Good job. <laughs> okay. Jesus was from Galilee, if you remember. And, and, and there was, uh, while it was still all Israel, there was some, definitely some distinct differences uh, here. Samaria, of course, I'm sure you uh, have, have heard of that before. It was the capital city when the kingdom was divided into the northern and southern kingdom in the Old Testament. You might remember that. It was the kingdom of Israel and then the kingdom of Judah. Well, Samaria was the capital city 
during that divided time. But then, of course, both of those kingdoms came under captivity. The northern kingdom by Assyria, the southern kingdom by Babylon. And they were both under captivity for hundreds of years. And then eventually they got their land back and were able to mold back into one Israel. But because of the divisions, because of things that had happened historically, there were still some great divides between them. Now, Galilee and Judah were primarily uh, populated by people who were what they would call pure-blooded Jews. It's interesting, when Babylon took over the southern kingdom, they never intermarried the people with the Jews. The Jews stayed, they only married Jews. But in Samaria, when the Assyrians came in, a guy by the name of Sargon, it sounds like something out of uh, Lord of the Rings, <laughs> you know, uh, when, he, when he came in 722 BC and he took, what he did is they took the Israelites out of there, total captivity, all that they left behind were the poorest of the poor, basically the servant class, the field hands, <laughs> and then what he did is they sent in their Assyrians and they like on purpose intermarried with those Jews and so it created this group of people who the pure-blooded Jews felt that they were a mixed race they felt that they weren't pure and then because of that though what came out of it was some kind of messed up Jewish theology as well so they they uh they they, they came out of this and and there was all of these differences and so the Samaritans were looked down upon by the religious high-end Jews did you know that racism has existed for all of all of uh, mankind Sadly, and this is what's so great about today's passage, but we'll get to that in a minute. I'm just setting the tone so you understand. So the Jews were like, meh, Samaritans, they're the worst. In fact, they had a prayer that they would pray. This is crazy. The Jews would pray this prayer. Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. I'm dead serious. This was a prayer that they would pray. Lord, please do not remember them in the resurrection. Can you imagine? This was something that they would regularly pray. This was the animosity between the two. That's why during the time of Christ, many people, rather than travel straight from Galilee to Jerusalem, they would go around Samaria simply so that they did not have to go through that place. Which reminds us of John chapter 4. Jesus, on purpose, went to Samaria. And I love that story. Jesus was always breaking those barriers. And he had commanded his followers to spread the gospel. But up until this point, it hadn't happened yet. So it had not happened. And this is where Philip, who later on we call him Philip the Evangelist, he's the only one in Scripture referred to as an evangelist, Philip was the one who went to bring the gospel to the Samaritans. Now this is not the Apostle Philip, in case you're wondering. This is Philip the Evangelist. He is one of the seven that were chosen. He went from bagging groceries to preaching the gospel. Uh, that's what he was chosen to do, was to take, uh, take food to people. And so he then, on his own, we don't know if he was displaced or if it was a decision that he made, but he went to Samaria and he began to bring the gospel to them. And this is what is so cool. As he got there, God gave him some miraculous uh, 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 miracles that took place. We saw some incredible things happen. And then I want you to see in verse number eight that there was great joy in that city. I love that. There was great joy in that city because he had brought the truth. Now, the thing that I read, when I read the scripture and I see this, the question that I ask is why did they receive Philip when they wouldn't receive any other Jew who came up there? By the way, the animosity went both ways. Why was it that Philip had this success, you could call it that, where he brought the gospel, they accepted it, they were glad, and then there was joy in the city. What's the, uh, what was it? Why is there joy now in this place that was filled with hatred toward Jerusalem Jews? That's what they refer to them as, Jerusalem Jews. Well, I, I think there's a couple things to keep in mind. By the way, today's a, little, a lot of background, a lot of historical stuff, things that you can use at work tomorrow, okay? 
Um, in part, I think Philip's ministry was effective because he was not a Jerusalem Jew. He, he has a Greek name. He was a, he was a Greek Jew, in fact. He was somebody who was Jewish but was born outside, and so that would have given him a little bit uh, of a different uh, feel, maybe. Um, the people there uh, maybe, maybe would have listened to him as well. We see that he was able to do miracles that authenticated what he was saying. But I believe the main reason that joy, though, was found in the city is simply because he came and he preached Christ to them. <laughs> And they've maybe for the first time heard the truth about Jesus Christ. They maybe heard about that woman with five husbands uh, who had turned to Jesus Christ. They maybe heard about the changes that had taken place in that city. But now we see Philip coming and he's preaching the resurrected Christ to them. And he wasn't preaching them a system of, uh, of Jewish theology. He wasn't coming and telling them, hey, uh, what you guys believe about God is totally wrong. He wasn't preaching to them traditions or anything like that. He came and preached Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen again. And obviously, of course, there was God's power as well. That helps, right? <laughs> the power of God and the, the casting out of demons and the, uh, those that were healed and uh, 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 that he used to back up the claims that Jesus Christ was who he was. And they saw the miracles and they repented and they believed and there was joy in that city. You know what the answer to joy in Vancouver is? People repenting and turning to Jesus Christ. The answer to joy in our city, that is a city that is so full of issues. <laughs> and you can name your issues. The answer in all of those is Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and risen from the dead. That's the answer that our city needs. And our city needs the hope that we sang about this morning. Our city needs a living hope. That is Jesus Christ. And even when some evangelical Christians are trying to minimize the idea of Jesus as being the only way, we, church, have to be reminded of what Jesus said in John 14, where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. See, it is the truth of the gospel that can make a difference in a city. And that's what we see. Philip comes, he unabashedly preaches the word of God, and, uh, and, and, and it makes a huge difference in this city. And I'm so thankful for people like Philip, who without fear took the word to a hostile place. Did you know that there are Christians all around the world this morning who are in hostile places and they're preaching the word of God? We should be so thankful for our missionaries that go to difficult places. I spoke this week to our missionary who's in Indonesia, a place that's over 90% Muslim. And he is out there every single day doing whatever it is that he can within his power to tell people about Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for people who make sacrifices like that. People who are like modern-day Phillips who go to these places and preach the Word of God. Well, he preached. Joy came to the city. But not everybody figured out what was going on. <laughs> not everybody grasped the truth. And so as we continue in our chapter, we come to a very, very unique story about a man who was there in Samaria who, despite all of the proofs of the Messiah, was still battling uh, an internal battle for his soul. And what we see here is Satan beginning to work in somebody and bringing about confusion and deception. And it brings about a misunderstanding of the gospel. And so I want you to see in the second half of the passage that we're going to be in, a misunderstood gospel. So the gospel is multiplying in, in Samaria. It's there for the first time. But now we see someone who's just having a bit of a misunderstanding of the gospel. It's a man by the name of Simon. Let's look at verse number 9 in Acts 8. And there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria. These are key things here. 
bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed. Look, look at that. They listened to this guy. From the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard because of that long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. Now we've learned already in Acts that whenever the gospel is received, Satan will try and deceive. <laughs> He'll try to mess things up. He'll try to confuse people. And he had already set up a deceiver in Samaria, this guy named Simon. He was known for his sorcery, his magic, his tricks, these things that he could do. And he was known for it. And it's interesting, in the days of the early church, these kind of people were very well known. They were influential in communities. They worked wonders. They were able to perform uh, healings even, exorcisms. They practiced astrology. But what they were utilizing was not the power of God. They were utilizing the power of Satan and trying to deceive a nation from knowing the Savior. And Simon had done so many wonders. Did you see there in the passage that they believed that he was some great one or he had the power of God or in another way of looking at it, he was the Messiah. They actually believed that he might be the promised one. Simon might be the Messiah, the one sent from God. And so many people turned to him, but then Philip came on the scene. So I want you to see two opposing things. Simon was the man. Simon had Samaria under his control. People were like, oh, Simon. But then here came Philip. And Philip is preaching the truth and people are repenting. They're turning away from Simon, right? They're turning towards the truth. They're turning away from his tricks to the reality of what God was doing. And that's one of the reasons God allowed these miracles to happen during this transitional time was to prove to unbelieving Jews that he is who he said he is and that those that he sent were who, uh, uh, who uh, those who he sent were his followers and truly had the power of God. And so they turned away from Simon and they turned to Philip who was preaching the power of Christ. And then look what happens in verse number 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Verse 13, then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when you read this at bold face, or you just read it for what it is, you're like, awesome. Philip got saved. This sorcerer, this magician, this witch got saved and he got baptized and he turned to Christ. But what you're about to see here is that his response is actually more of a reaction to his own followers dwindling. It's kind of the idea of you can't beat them, join them mentality. <laughs> That's what I think Simon had. And things get even more interesting. Look at verse number 14. I mean, you read that, you're like, awesome. This guy, he got saved. Now, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard, this is cool, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they came down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Now, this is super interesting what's happening right here. Really, really interesting. Like I mentioned, the book of Acts is a what kind of book? Transitional book, especially these few chapters here. And so we see the gospel being spread, but something interesting happens here. So those down in Jerusalem heard about the amazing things that were going on in Samaria. This is super cool. So they sent the two head office guys. 
Peter and John to go check it out, you know? Uh, I have a friend of mine who, uh, who does a, a, a job for, um, he works for uh, A&W. He does contract work for A&W. He does videos for them. And uh, just recently, he got to fly on the A&W private jet. Yeah, it looks like root beer. No. <laughs> uh, he got to fly in the A&W uh, jet as he and, and three other of their high-end executives went, and they hit the top three performing A&Ws in Canada in one day and surprised them, you know. And, you know, so anyway, and he was videoing. That's pretty cool. I don't know if they flew up in a jet, but Peter and John got up there. They jetted up there. <laughs> they made sure. They wanted to find out. Because remember, they're here in Jerusalem. They're thinking, wow, God's doing amazing things here in Jerusalem. Wait a minute. The Samaritans are believing? Right? I mean, this is a the big thing. So he sends them to go and make sure, because Philip, I believe, had been sent out of that church in Jerusalem to go as an evangelist. Well, they got there, and they came to confirm what was happening, and they arrived, and they found the believers were genuine. Except there was one thing that was missing. Did you notice what happened there? They noticed that they had not received the Holy Spirit. Now, wait a minute. Let's think about this for a second. Because we know that in Jerusalem, the day of Pentecost, they received the Holy Spirit. Saved, baptized, the Holy Spirit came down, right? You remember that? Okay, okay, good. <laughs> good. I'm glad you remember that part. So why is it when they go to Samaria that the Holy Spirit wasn't just like automatic? Because we know today we get saved. We have the Holy Spirit of God. We'll talk about that in a second. Why didn't the Holy Spirit come to the Samaritans? Or why didn't it happen when they believed and were baptized? Because it says they believed and were baptized. Now, let's get into some doctrinal stuff here, some understanding here, because there is some misunderstanding about this doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We know in Scripture there is one baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's when you as a believer receive the Holy Spirit of God. They call that, it's referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. However, in the book of Acts, we see that it came in three stages. The first stage was to the Jews in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost. We've already mentioned that. The second stage of the coming of the Holy Spirit was to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, what we just read about right now. The third phase, the third wave, if you want to call it that, of the Holy Spirit's arrival was to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 in Cornelius' home. And we're going to get there in a few weeks when the Holy Spirit came to the Gentiles. So why did it come in these stages? Why was it staged out like this? Or why did it happen in different ways? By the way, Acts chapter 10 is the last time that we see the Holy Spirit being given by the apostles to a group of people. That's the last time. From that point on, we continue on with salvation, Holy Spirit, and then uh, baptism. So why did it come? Well, here's, here's why. Here's, here's a great way to understand why it came in these different stages, just so we're not confused and we're very clear. Here's why. God, remember, was trying to unite people, wasn't he? God was trying to bring people together. And he wanted to bring the, the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentile believers. He wanted them all to be in unity. He did not want three different churches that would perpetuate their division and conflict and racism that had existed for centuries. He didn't want that to continue on. And so that's one of the reasons that it came in three stages. Jesus had said to Peter, this is interesting, had said to Peter in Matthew 16, he said that Peter was going to have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. It's a very interesting statement. And what he meant by that is that Peter was going to be the one that had the privilege of opening the door of faith to others. Peter was the one at Pentecost. Peter was the one in Samaria. And guess who is there in Acts chapter 10 with the Gentile believers 
who gave them the Holy Spirit by laying on of hands, it was John. No, it's Peter. You're right. <laughs> it was Peter. It was Peter. Now, it's so interesting when you learn these things and you kind of connect the dots on these. See, the pattern in Acts chapter 10 that we'll see is of repentance, receiving the Holy Spirit, and then baptism. And that's what we have today. We're saved. We receive the Holy Spirit of God. And then baptism is an outward expression of an inward decision of what took place. And uh, from that point on, that's what we see happening. I'll share a couple of verses with you. In Romans 8, 9, it tells us, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Okay? Uh, uh, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. In uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 21, it's actually 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry. Now he which established us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God who hath sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. That's talking about how the Spirit is a proof. It is an example to us of our salvation. Now, here's why this is important to know. It's important to know because there is false teaching about the Holy Spirit. What? Yes, there is false teaching about the Holy Spirit. And uh, there are people out there who believe that the Holy Spirit is something that is only received through water baptism. There are certain denominations and groups that claim Christ that say, well, you, in order to receive the Holy Spirit, you have to be water baptized, then you receive the Spirit. Now, they base that off of what happened at Pentecost. But then what we see in Samaria and in, within the Gentiles in Acts 10, we don't see anything about baptism. In fact, the Samaritans were repented and baptized, and they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit by the laying on, the hand, laying on of hands. We see that again for a second time. So that kind of takes that argument or that ideal out. I'm not sure why they didn't continue reading in the book of Acts after Acts chapter number two. Um, but then there's others that believe that the baptism of the spirit or that as a believer, you must repent, turn to Christ. And they believe that then there's a secondary event or a secondary situation that then you receive the Holy Spirit of God or that you continually receive it. Many times they believe that the only way you can know for sure that you have the Spirit of God is if there's an outward expression of that, of speaking in tongues or of, of, uh, of, of wisdom or a word of knowledge, they call it. And, and they believe that that's the proof then that you have received uh, the Spirit of God. And, and, uh, and, and there's, a, there's an element of you having to prove to people that you have received the, the Spirit of God. And I gotta tell you guys, that is not correct doctrinal truth. It's not. If it came by baptism, then what about the Samaritans and the Gentiles? If it only comes about by somebody else laying on of hands, why do we then see later on that the Holy Spirit comes to those who are saved? You say, why are we talking about this? <laughs> because there's a lot of people that are deceived. A lot of people that are deceived. And I'm not even, I'm not even touching the surface of, of, of showing you and revealing to you how we are saved we receive the Holy Spirit of God when we are saved. We're sealed on that day of salvation. And baptism is an outward expression to the world. It's a proof to the world of what God has already done. It's a, it's a picture of the death of our sins and being made alive in Jesus Christ. And, and, and the reason that we're talking about it is because people get confused about the Holy Spirit of God. And what I want to show you is that Simon was confused about the Holy Spirit of God. And so from its inception, people have been confused. It's been misunderstood. Look at verse number 18, what happens here. And when Simon saw, okay, he saw, pick up on that word. When he saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. <laughs> Interesting guy. Saying, give me also. Now I, want you to, I want you to cue in on the words. We're, how we say things are important, right? He said, give me also this power. 
that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. This is interesting. Remember, Simon had supposedly believed and was baptized. But what we see here are his true colors. I think there's a song about that. We see his true colors. <laughs> I don't think it has anything to do with the song or this passage. Because what we see here is somebody who's more interested in miracles than in Christ. I want you to notice. When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given when the apostles placed their hands upon people, this was, again, this was a unique transitional thing that was taking place. God is trying to show the Samaritans, you are not second-class citizens. He's trying to show them that, okay, you can have, and he's trying to show to the Jews as well, that, listen, I approve of their, their what is happening here is real. Because I, I think, I want you to make sure you understand, if, if God had just been like, all right, when people trust in me, they have the Holy Spirit, I mean, from day one, we would have had a Gentile church, a Samaritan church, and a Jew church to this day. But by doing it in stages, it was God showing to them, I am, I am bringing this together. The gospel is for the entire world. It is for everybody is what he's trying to say. And so we have this special transitional moments that take place here. And here for these Samaritans, I don't know how it was noticed. I don't know if it was like the day of Pentecost, that there was like a, a swirling or tongues of fire. It doesn't say that. But something obviously Simon cued in on, and he was like, wait a minute, there's something going on here. <laughs> and instead of, and here's what I want you to get, instead of asking for the Holy Spirit, did you notice that? Instead of asking for the Holy Spirit, he asked for the power to give the Spirit to people. Did you see that? It's right there in the verse. He says, I want the power to lay hands and to give the Spirit. And then he tried to buy it, <laughs> right? He's like, hey, whatever you want, man, I got money. I'll give it to you. And he tried to buy the ability to bestow spiritual power on other people. Now, we laugh about it. We say, oh, man, he's, he's so ignorant. But you know what? Throughout history, Christians have acted in this way. There's literally a term in church history called simony, <laughs> literally, in church history, there's an author, uh, uh, old commentator, his name is uh, W.A. Criswell. He wrote uh, extensively about it. I want to share uh, something that he said uh, about this idea of simony. He says, the church became a part of the state at the time of Constantine's conversion. You guys uh, maybe have heard about that or you've, you learned about how Constantine made uh, Christianity for the first time, the state religion. And he said, the church became a part at the time of Constantine's conversion. Simony, he calls it, simony was already practiced, but it increased in the buying of ecclesiastical office and benefits. For example, a bishop's office could be bought for a certain amount of money. The same was true of an archbishop's office. You could buy a cardinal's hat. Now, he's not saying just buy the hat. He's talking about the authority within the church. And ecclesiastical living in parishes and in monasteries, you could buy your way into them. Simony finally gave ri uh, rise to the Reformation when all over Europe indulgences were sold in order to get money to build St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. <laughs> Now, today, you could, you could probably point to some things today where, where, where there's some people that are trying to uh, gain favor within church based off of maybe money or, or different things like that. I'm going to kind of clarify. I'll, I'll wrap it all up here in a second. But I think when, it, when we think about this purpose and we think about Simon, you know, for us, none of us would be so, you know, none of you would come to me, Pastor, like, hey, like, is it cool if I slip you an extra, you know, 100 bucks for some sort of Holy Spirit thing? <laughs> By the way, let, let me tell you this. If the power was given to me to give the Holy Spirit to people, I want you to think about this for a moment because some people believe this. If the power was actually, don't you think I would be right at Satan's top of the list for corruption? 
if I unequivocally had the power to give the Holy Spirit, don't you think that to benefit my family, I'd be like, hey, yeah, it's going to cost you. I just know the human heart, right? Okay, let's uh, think, think logically through some of these, th- these things. If it was supposedly given to people to have this power, man, you're number one for corruption right there. That was on the side. Um, <laughs> but for us, I think it's important for us to check our own hearts when it comes to this subject. Because simply because we don't offer money for it doesn't mean that our hearts are not necessarily corrupted sometimes. Simon tried to obtain spiritual power in order to promote himself. I think he was trying to get his power back. And here's the key, church. Any time that we seek spiritual power or spiritual abilities to elevate us above others, we make the same error. I'll put it, I'll start with me. I'll start with me. If I ever am preaching for the purpose of gaining recognition or the purpose of status, I got a ways to go, Christian. Just hang out for a minute. Sorry, cool. (laughs) He thought I was done. (laughs) It's all good. I got a ways to go. All right, so focus in. Now you're all nervous. Did you notice there's only two points today? Only two points. Okay, I'll get there. But let's just think about me for a minute. If I was preaching only to gain recognition, if I was only preaching and only doing my best at preaching the word of God so that somebody else would notice and invite me to go preach at a bigger church, or if I only preached in a certain way so that someone in a big church would recognize me and ask me to come and be their pastor, what am I doing there? I'm I'm manipulating the thing. If we only serve the church, if we only serve other people to advance in the church's power structure, It's the same thing. It's simony, as we learned about. If we seek spiritual gifts only to promote oneself, it's the same thing. Even seeking to be godly so that someone else will think that we are godly falls in that same category. I read a story, actually, in several of the commentaries I read had the same story about a pastor and his wife who were looking to go out and buy a house. And uh, that's great. They found a home they liked and they went and they made an offer on it. But when they got there and they began to talk to the owners, the owners told the pastor, they said, we would like to give you this house. Snaps, right? That sounds great. <laughs> and this is what they said, though. We know that you're a pastor. We know you're in the ministry. And so we want to give you this house if you would make sure that we would go to heaven. Dead serious. Dead serious. As long as you can guarantee that we're going to go to heaven, we want to give you this house. Now, to the oh Siri thought I was talking to her. All right, to the credit, <laughs> to the credit of the pastor and his wife, they said it doesn't work that way, which I'm thankful. Right? I'm thankful they didn't say, "Oh yeah, no problem, I got you." They said it doesn't work that way, and interesting, they sat down and they were able to lead them to Christ that day, which I think is really cool. And uh, you say, did they give them the house? They actually did. But here's the point: you know, they were trying to buy spiritual favor. They were trying to buy a place in heaven. It doesn't work that way, and Simon was deceived. And anytime we try to manipulate spirituality and try to manipulate um, the, the, the blessings of the gift of the Spirit of God and try to manipulate it for our own gain, we're, tr- we're doing what Simon is doing right here. We laugh, ha ha, he's trying to give money for the Spirit and all that. Listen, we do the same thing. It's all about our heart motives, isn't it? It's about checking our heart and who we truly are. Simon was deceived and you have to remember, he was speaking to Peter, so Peter always responded in a great way, right? Look at what Peter said in verse 20. Peter said unto him, thy money perish with thee. <laughs> because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. 
Verse 22, he said, Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter didn't mess around. He just said, uh, listen, he condemned his, his view of the gospel and his view of the Holy Spirit. He called his behavior wickedness. And in verse number 23, notice what he said there. He said, I feel that you're in the, ball, or the gall of, of bitterness, which is a very strong way of saying you just, you're all messed up inside. You're in inner turmoil. And then he said this at the end, and in the bond of iniquity, meaning you're held captive by your sin, meaning he hadn't truly repented and hadn't truly turned to Jesus Christ. And look at how, and you would think after he speaks to him, you would think Simon would be like, you're right. You see right through me. You know, Uh, look what he says though. And then answered Simon and said, pray ye the Lord for me that none of these things which have spoken come upon me. You know, it's hard to tell if Simon is repentant or just afraid of Peter at this moment because he saw that he could actually do things and he could not do, you know, his was all fake. But I want you to notice that he didn't pray. He asked him to pray for him, which again, I think that's a a, a revelation of his heart. He says, would you please pray for me? Instead of him himself, if he was truly uh, born again, he would have known that I can pray. I can pray directly to God. What a crazy situation. (laughs) What a crazy story that happened here. But through it all, what I want you to see is that God is still getting the glory and the gospel is spreading. We end with verse number 25. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. It didn't just end right there in that main city. It spread all about the area of Samaria. I love to say that. I'm sorry. It was spread all over and people came and learned the gospel. And what do we learn from all this? You say, Pastor, what's the lesson here? Here's the lesson. We learn that the gospel of Jesus Christ can have an amazing effect in a place that is far from God. We see how God used Philip, a man who was not afraid to preach Christ, to impact a culture and a race of people. He was God's instrument in penetrating the darkness of superstitious, a superstition. Remember, uh, Simon had people under his control, but yet the gospel uh, went right through it and brought light to those people's hearts. We have to remember that, church, that the gospel can change people, completely radically change people and change a society. And the other thing I want us to see is that God can use us as well. You got to remember, just as those believers were scattered to make a difference, we are scattered every single week into our neighborhoods, into our jobs, and maybe even into your family to preach and teach the Word of God that is backed up by our living. That is what God has called us to do. And lastly, I think what we can learn from this passage is that the power of God cannot be bought. (laughs) Cannot be bought. There are no shortcuts to power with God. There's no shortcuts. It will only come as we surrender our will to Him, as we endeavor to keep our hearts pure and ready before Him. You know, this passage is is just so powerful. And I'm confronted by the incredible reality of the working of God. And when God wants to see something happen, there's no stopping it. (laughs) There's no stopping it. I want to encourage you today with this thought. God wants to use you. I know I say that a lot. I know I say it a lot. You're like, yes, Pastor. We say it all the time. It's because we forget it. Sometimes as soon as we walk outside of this door, that God can and will use His people who are surrendered to Him. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Vance City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you 
as you pursue His will for your life.